Welcome to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 14, The Absolute. similar questions here, it must be fundamentally identical, I think. Long one says, the definition of a fact is an act of perception. You have stated that all is an eternal fact. If the absolute can only perceive through a finite, does this then suppose that the universe and all beings within it uh, are already finited in all their stages of evolution? A fact is an act of perception we've got. We've heard this before. The act, the act here, refers to the force involved in the act. And the fact is always to an observer. And the observer's own force his attention is going out to meet another force. This force traveling along and another force meets it. And the two together, where they meet, rotate and produce a fact. There is a force and a counterforce. The two meet and bring into being a fact. An act of force, an act of observation. And all facts ever conceived in the universe have been conceived inside someone's consciousness. You know that Bishop Barclay used this to prove that there are no non-perceived facts and that to be is to be perceived. And he postulated to cover all the facts not perceived by human beings, God as a supreme observer. We cannot conceive a fact without a consciousness to observe the fact, because by a fact we mean a process within a consciousness. So if we try to imagine a fact outside any consciousness whatever, we are illegitimately transferring something from consciousness, which we call a fact perceived, outside the frame of consciousness and projecting it into a hypothetical non-consciousness with all the qualities that belong to being perceived that is, to being presented in a consciousness, which sounds very simple. Uh, it says here, if the absolute can only perceive through a finite, does not this suppose that the universe and all beings within it are already finite in all their stages of evolution? Well, it doesn't actually logically presuppose that in the form here put. Uh, first, when it says, if the absolute can only perceive through a finite, does the absolute perceive through a finite? This depends on the meaning of the perceived. Well, this, if we put it in a bit of uh, near to its Latin form, that per means through, and it also means rational. It is a process of rationally going through, and the sip or kip part is the form formulation to perceive is to rationally cut out from the absolute or to cut out against the background of the absolute. Let the paper represent the absolute for a moment where there are no marks drawn on it. That paper now is the absolute sentient power. The absolute sentient power is the spirit of God. If it doesn't move, if it doesn't produce marks on itself, then there is no perception, there is no rational cutting, and there is no formal presentation. If, on the other hand, the absolute moves, it produces in its movements forms of movements. As they traverse the paper, as I move it, I can capture with my eye a shape 
and say I'll represent that shape in a waveform. That line I've drawn is simply a line I saw in the movement of the paper as I waved it about. And I've abstracted that waveform and recorded it with a piece of chalk. Now I have brought into being a finite and I now perceive it. I rationally cut it out from the background totality of motions of the absolute. So that all perceptions whatever, by definition of perception, are cuttings rationally made from an absolute. The absolute is simultaneous in all its parts. Its parts are simply the absolute perceived by partial perceivers. A man is a vehicle of perception. He's a finite. And because he's a finite vehicle, he perceives. That is to say, he receives finitely that which absolutely is infinite. Because we have a physical body, and this physical body has a limit, when stimuli come to it, they are reflected inside the body, whatever level they come, and this internal process goes to the limit, the skin surface of the body, if you like, the limiting factor, and is reflected back and forth inside that limit. And therefore, the finite form of the vehicle produces the fact of finite perception. If the vehicle were infinite, first of all, it wouldn't be a vehicle, and secondly, uh, if it were infinite, it would have no percepts. That is, it would not have a rational cut-out from the absolute. It would see only the absolute. It would be identical with the absolute by the removal of its finiting vehicle. So the first part, the absolute can only proceed through a finite, we turn around and say, where there is perception, there is a finite vehicle. And this finite vehicle exists in, or for, and through the absolute, which has produced it. The vehicle has a function, a use, and the absolute has produced the vehicles, some of which are our own bodies. And through these bodies, the motions of the absolute reach finity. They get into the bodies and reflect against the perimeters. And this reflection is perception. <coughs> so where there is perception within a finite vehicle like man, the force of it is the absolute appearing within a circumscribed or finite limit. You can see immediately that if we put a force into a triangular beam, the mode of reflection of that force will not be the same as if we put it into a square beam or a circular beam. But we would expect the mode of reflection within the circular beam to be different from that of a square or a triangle or a crescent. If we take these simple geometrical forms and call them characters, then the mode of perception is the resultant of the character of the beam. The receiving being reflects the absolute inside itself according to its characteristic shape. This means that no two dissimilar shapes can perceive the same fact. Only in so far as we can attain similarity of shape can we perceive the same facts. If we all learn the same concepts, then when the absolute works through us, we will have the same percepts at that conceptual level. The concept is a form that we insert in the mind. And when the absolute force enters that concept, it reflects within that concept. And if the concept is identical in two different people, then the force of the absolute is interpreted by them in an identical manner. This is why it is said that the percepts of all sages, all seers, are the same. They all see the same because they all have the same conceptual vehicle that reflects the absolute infinite in the same way. Now the second part of it is the beings within the universe are already finited in all their stages of evolution. And this is rather a funny one. It says that a baby much, you know, a baby and the same being grown up to be a child and grown up a bit further to be a youth and grown up a bit further to be an adult 
in the universe, in eternity, all these stages are simultaneously existing, which is a very peculiar thought. In time, we see an egg, and an embryo, and then a baby, and then a child, and a youth, and a man, and so on, separately. And as one stage appears, the other stages disappear. But in eternity, this cannot be so. And we know that it cannot be so, because that adult carries inside an egg, which he posits. And the egg then proceeds to develop through the same stages. Somehow, all these stages are mysteriously contained in association with the egg. This means that at some level of being, the egg, the embryo, the baby, the child, the youth, the adult, are simultaneously co-presented. In eternity, every phase through which we go coexists. We can actually find sometimes in psychological cases, pathologues, that they can regress through certain stimuli acting upon them, so that an adult can be knocked back by a suggestion, say under hypnosis, and by other techniques, and made to react like a youth, made to react like a child, made to react like a baby, made to react like an embryo, made to react like an egg. And whatever level he's regressed to, which we can experimentally demonstrate, he will show the characteristic reflexes of that stage. And the other reflexes that belong to the later stages do not appear. And if a person has been regressed to the level of an embryo, and he recalls his experiences and reflexes, and then we bring him back again, say to the level of the adult, and ask him to reproduce with his physical body the reflexes he has just experienced as an embryo, he cannot, by individual effort of will, do it. And yet he's just done it. You can show responses, reflex responses in the person proper to his age, and then regress him to an earlier stage, and he will then show you the reflexes proper to an earlier stage. And when brought back, he cannot, by act of will, as an individual, induce these earlier reflexes. And yet, somehow, very mysteriously, they're there. So then we have to consider the human being in another way. A way not the usual way. Somewhere there's an egg and an embryo and a child and so on. These are all simultaneous and coexistent. And a blow from outside a shock can cause any level to disappear as a function. An aggression to a childish level can occur. So, we usually talk about the man as if he were a portion of that. At one time it's an egg, and the next is an embryo, and the others don't exist. And then he's a child, and then a youth, and so on. When we do this, we're talking as if a man were just as much as we see of him in the time process. Whereas, in fact, from the evidence we have, apart from ontological considerations, the whole man is the real man, the man who is simultaneously containing all the phases through which he has been. So that this body of the man, from egg through to grown adult, we could give another name. We could call it, if we like, the long body. It has been called the long body before. The short body is how he looks now, and the long body is the totality of all the phases of that man from his egg state through to his adult state. Now, all these phases through which he goes can only be gone through and retained, providing they are simultaneous. At each stage that we see a person in, there is another stage we can't see waiting to appear, and another stage we can't see that did appear and now is not. So that the time man, the short body, is travelling along his long body. The total man has a stress upon him, and he may have a seven-year-old stress, or a twenty-one-year-old stress, and so on, on his long body. And we recognise people in time by the place of their stress in this long body. But the whole man contains all these phases. Now, 
The whole man, therefore, is a peculiarly unique thing and has a name that is a form which resounds, has resonance within the ambition. And the name of that long body is not the name that is known by the temporal process, but it is the name that is the resultant and at the same time the fundamental of the totality of harmonics which constitutes his being. He has a mysterious name which is his characteristic and unique vibration and is unknowable to any other finite. No man knows it save he who receives it. And the only other knowing of it, other than his own knowing as an individual, is the knowing of the absolute. So if any individual wanted to find out the secret name of another individual, he could only do it by abandoning identification with the individual and becoming absolute, uh, from the absolute level, feeling and perceiving the constituent vibration of the finite individual he's considering. So we're saying that in our original diagram of the space impulses of the absolute, which we repeat, are simply circles constructed quite geometrically on which we could go on covering the paper with. And the center of each circle is the primary impulse, and the perimeter of each circle is the reaction zone between the initiating center and the motions from other centers. The totality of all these interlacing forms is the logos. This logos is with God, that is with the absolute, and is God, that is, is the formulating creative principle. And inside this logos, by the very nature of the impulse from the center, there are unique individuals. No center can become another center. Every center is self-initiating, and the totality of all these centers constitute a very, very peculiar big center, which big center we call God. You can see immediately that if we start at any given center, we can go around and very quickly we cover the territory with six circles. And if we want to put a super stress on it, we make one circle out of six. And that makes an individual with six other individuals on the inside. And the little individuals on the inside are sub-entities of the big one. And this makes a human being within cosmos a sub-ent of cosmos. So the human beings are peculiarly members of God. That is, they're sub-ents in the body of God, sub-ents in the body of cosmos. And just in the same way that we act sometimes sensibly and sometimes nonsensibly upon sub-ents within our own body, so God can act upon the sub-ents within his body, only in his case, not nonsensibly. He can and does induce a change in any finite misbehaving by simply contracting or expanding the zone of the superior being which encloses it. So if the earth is the center of a particular kind of disturbance, those disturbances spread through the cosmos, and cosmos, in its finest and subtlest aspects, has to produce only the very slightest modification somewhere out here to alter the whole dynamic state of the earth. And the result is the plans of human beings to dominate the situation are set at naught and by force it's so subtle, you don't even know they exist. Now this ties up with the next question, which is much shorter. It says, why is there no remission of sin without the shedding of blood? When we talk about blood in the human body, we're talking about something that has always symbolized to the ancients, to life principle itself. In the words of Goethe in Faust, Blood is a very peculiar substance, a very special substance. Somehow, water plus some mineral salts plus something plus X is able to resonate in a very peculiar manner with the absolute. Through the blood of the individual, forces are conveyed from beyond the individual man into the nervous system and brain and intelligence of man. And this blood is mediating these super-individual 
motions with the individual. It is the means whereby some mysterious forces get into the body which do not get in half so efficiently if we drain all the blood out of somebody. Now let's have a look. Supposing we say the ancients thought symbolically and by blood they meant the life principle in any body. We have an individual man, his zone of influence, some more individual man, and so on. A group of these men constitute perhaps a family or a tribe. And then we start up again at the tribal side. And we build them up again, and we get another sense. And we tie these together, and that's a nation. And then we start up again at the same size, and we go on doing this, and we make a confederation of nations. Each time we draw in the wheels within wheels that Ezekiel saw in his vision. Now we're getting this bigger and bigger terrestrial life itself, planetary life, bigger and bigger solar life, sidereal life, and so on. We're going out bigger and bigger and bigger. But no matter how far we go, by blood we mean the life principle. Down here at the individual level, we can talk about the blood of an individual man. Here we can talk about the blood of humanity as opposed to the blood of animality or the chlorophyll, blood of the plant world, and so on. We can talk about planetary blood, solar blood, sidereal blood, cosmic blood, and the blood of God, meaning the very life principle in God. Now it says, without shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. And sin is defined as the missing of the mark, and the mark is to become developed to the level of absolute consciousness and identity with the purpose of God. And to miss that mark is to get stuck somewhere as a finite. Now, when you are a finite, you are being sinful, and if you have any life at all within inside yourself, locked up, that life is going to cease to be life, it will become born, and it will die to sheer locked-inness of its own being, unless it receives an influx of blood from a higher level. Every individual experiences this. If as an individual we become isolated and don't know what to do with ourselves, and then somebody comes in from outside, we haven't seen them for ten years, and they knock at the door and march in. And at that moment, life expands, and the blood circulates wherever you've been peculiar thing, a new interest is coming. And it's coming because there came in from outside a new flux of life principle, a new blood. The same thing happens when the white people or the black people or the brown people, after thousands of years of separation, are driven together and begin to let in other blood. It injects a new attitude to life, a new vitality. Consequently, all finance, whatever, are requiring an influx of the blood of the absolute, that is, of the life principle of the absolute, God. And consequently, if this blood does not come in, then that being cannot be released from its separativity and locked upness. But, as far as the absolute is concerned, that blood is shed. Here is an individual enlarged, and he has a boundary. And that boundary is specially there to keep that individual individuated. And he is grabbing on, holding on to his individuality. Now, if we stick a knife in him in the finite world and let his blood run out this way, his life diminishes. But if we don't drill a hole in him somehow, he's going to remain locked in his finity and perish. So somehow we've got to let the life force of the cosmos and of the absolute through cosmos into him. And it can only be, as far as cosmos is concerned, an actual emission of cosmic blood, of God's blood, into the finite individual. From God's point of view, he has spilled his blood inwards. The finite man, in a 
crime of violence spills his blood outwards. God spills his blood inwards. And if this absolute spirit does not spill inwards into the individual man, then there is no vitality. If we take a, an egg in a woman and just leave it alone and do nothing with it, after a time it will perish, it's no good. But if there is an entrance of a spermatic logos into that egg, as soon as it gets inside, something starts up. A process starts up inside, mitosis starts, and out of this you get a new baby, a new life. There is only one law, and the same law holding good in this fertilization is holding good currently. The shedding of that blood of the Absolute is the precondition of the gaining of energy to break out of the bond of sin. For that means to expand his concept and become bigger. He must have this energy from outside, from God, to press against his limiting wall and push it out further. And because it is the life principle, it is called the blood of God. And because it has to be inserted by a being that has nothing outside itself. So it is said to be an emission, to produce a remission. This blood is shed into the fire. And when we consider this very carefully, any force whatever entering into a finite situation presses against its perimeter and enlarges it. And if no such force comes, then the finite being remains at its level, or worse happens. If it moves at all without gaining energy, it is radiating energy away from itself through its skin surface. So that if you work very, very hard and drop a lot of heat through hard work, you've lost the energy generated from the food you've eaten. And if you don't get any more food back, you will lose weight very rapidly. The harder you work, the more weight you will lose. So that not only do you not expand your territory if you don't get any blood of the cosmic blood, you actually shrink because you move and you act internally and you are a continuously diminishing quantity and you are on the way to the final stage when you have nothing left to lose completely locked in individual who cannot break out. Now you can see from this that apart from this force from outside which comes in freely, gracia, freely, gracefully, there is no possible hope for an individual. The individual, finited, cannot possibly help himself from himself in the absence of another force outside himself, pressing in. Are there any particular points we can enlarge upon What is the relationship of the force coming in to the person's own centre of the spirit? Let's have a look. We say that when a force rotates, it can't go to the dead centre. So it always leaves inside itself the zone of imminent spirit. That zone of imminent spirit is untouched paper, and beyond the transcendent spirit is untouched paper too. So they are qualitatively identical, and yet in a very peculiar way they are separated by the function of the action brain. When two finites come together and collide, their collision disturbs their being. And it may actually disrupt the vehicle, make it fall to bits. So that in the contingent stimulus situation, instead of the orders coming from imminent spirit only, they're coming from external stimuli. Now the imminent spirit, which is identical with the transcendent spirit, is trying to organize a finite territory because this finite territory, the individual vehicle, has a function, namely it enables perception to actualize itself, and God to be realized in man. The enemy of this perception of God realized in man is the external stimulus overthrowing the organizing activity of the inner spirit.
spirit. The inner spirit is surrounded immediately by this Logos principle, and then the mind, and the five-pointed star symbolizing the five senses. So the relation between the two is that they're really cooperating for the same end. There's a dialogue going on between the imminent spirit in man and the transcendent spirit of the Amshivit. And the dialogue exists because the vehicle exists between them. The internal spirit, the initiative center, is sending orders to organize this vehicle properly. And the transcendent spirit is helping to manipulate the position of this vehicle to make sure that it gets the next appropriate stimulus to help its organization. So we have a body vehicle characterized by mass inertia, a center of free initiative trying to organize it and make it responsive, and an infinite beyond the transcendent spirit. And the imminent and the transcendent are not disconnected. They are a continuum represented by the paper. So that the information of transcendence is conveyed to the imminent and the imminent then sends a message into the vehicle and the message is go in a certain direction to get your next contingent stimulus. So as a man becomes more and more aware of this, becomes more field conscious, and more aware of the need in his own vehicle for a given type of experience to raise the sensitivity and response capacity of his vehicle, the information of where that situation is in which he may develop is contained in the transcendent spirit in the field of the absolute and is transmitted to the imminent spirit and the imminent spirit then gives a decision to move the vehicle in a given direction. Yes, I don't formulate the question whatever. Um, the arrow in the previous diagram symbolizes the inward shedding of God's blood. Yeah, yeah. Does this represent energy translating itself through another finite, thus causing contingent relations? Otherwise, um, why isn't the imminent center of a person used, which in any case is substantial to it and to God? Well, for this reason, let's look very, very carefully see what happens. There is the zone of action, and this action is fundamentally a rotating system, in the middle of which there is a non-rotating. Now, this action band is in contingent relation with other action bands. And when the action bands collide, they cloud each other with mutual stimulation, so that the formal content in the vehicle at the contingent level is a product of the contingent clashing of the beings. Now, underneath this contingent action is spirit, which is like the paper. But the intention of the spirit is to make finite, unique individuals, each developed with some talent in a specific direction, in order to make manifest all formal possibilities of the absolute. To make manifest is to finite. If there is no finiting process, there is no manifestation. And if there is no manifestation, there is no value. So to make value, there has to be a manifestation, a finiting process, and that must be made by setting up an inertic system. And then across this system here, there is obscuration of the transcendent and the imminent. But the imminent spirit, although it is none different from the transcendent qualitatively, is different spatially. It is located within the contingent, within the finite being. Its problem is to organize internally this vehicle in such a way that all the pattern of the internal vehicle echoes this fundamental fact of spirit, this eternal geometrizing of events. When it has done so, it has made a vehicle which still exists and it's a filter 
through which the energies of transcendence pass and the energies of immanent spirit pass and produce a dialogue between immanent and transcendent spirit within the vehicle. The transcendent gives infinite information to all beings. The immanent selects from this infinite the finite information needed for the further development of this unique vehicle. So there's a, a real dialogue between imminent spirit and transcendent spirit within the vehicle, although imminent and transcendent spirit are absolutely non-different. There's nevertheless a functional dialogue between them. Transcendence itself gives the information and in the process called the curse can alter the resistances in any given direction so that the vehicle tends to move if the resistance on one side is lowered which means the transcendent spirit simply moves away from that zone rather rapidly more than it does on the other sides there arises in the vehicle a tendency to move in that direction the imminent spirit seeing this can then move in that direction or it can decide to go in another direction according to the formal necessities of the evolution of the vehicle. Remember, really, it's a vehicle that we are perfecting. When St. Paul says, first a physical body and then a spiritual body, he's saying if we don't organize our physical body, we cannot make a spiritual body. And the spiritual body suffuses the physical body from which it has grown, just like heat goes through a bar of iron. Although without the bar of iron, you couldn't localize the heat. And yet the heat is not the iron. In the same way, the spirit that is in the vehicle of a man is not the body, and yet without that body, it cannot appear. <coughs> so first of all, we have to have a physical vehicle. We have to be a baby and get restricted and thwarted in our desires, conditioned, characterized, fight against it, not always agree with it, and in so doing, characterize the internal structure of our vehicle and in this process of characterization arises the unique nature of the individual and yet the whole process is a dialogue between imminent and transcendent spirit is that how God the Son would ever speak to the Father? yes in that way see probably the hardest concept is this in uh, Indian metaphysics, the concept of the Advaita, the non-dual absolute, not the monistic absolute. Monism implies a financing process. You can't have a one without drawing yourself a contour to bind that one. The statement there is one God is a statement about a finite process. The statement there are not two gods is really a higher statement. Shankara, who had a, a mind far transcending the monistic mind of the ordinary philosopher, refused to accept this monistic concept because it is a financing concept. If you say there is one God and you're using the word one to mean that which can be located and differentiated from other beings, if you say that, you have already imposed upon yourself a concept. Thus, if a man says there is one God, this God can be divided from the devil, by definition. He can be divided from his creatures, by definition. Because one means that you have factually circumscribed him, and you characterize him in a certain way in the act of defining him. Whereas in the non-dual statement, you cannot say that God is one, you can only say that he's not two not more than two, and consequently the devil and the creatures cannot escape him. By this method of non-dual thinking, the Godhead can be seen in its true perspective, and the meaning of the God above God can be seen, and the meaning of the double expression in the prologue of the Gospel of John, that in the beginning is the Word, and the Word is with the God, and the Word was a God, which is quite clear in the original in John, 
that a God refers to this form than which we can conceive no larger. Draw the circle than which you can conceive no larger. That is God. But it is not the God. Because beyond that circle is the God. And this is mystically called the God above God. But that corresponds with the non-dual absolute of Shankara. It's a tricky concept only because we are trained in Europe to think in terms of unity instead of non-duality. Unity we can locate. There's a, a uni and a tie. If we don't get that tie on the end, we can't get this unit. There's a cross there, and there's an affirmation. There's Y and T, and that is the crucifixion. But that is a reference to the godless son, to the crucified God, crucified on the covenant body. But beyond this is the father that he speaks to. The imminent spirit in man is the Christ mind in that man. And it is talking across and through the vehicle to God the Father, who is the non-dual action. To realize this is to realize the possibility of an intelligent dialogue between internal intelligence in man and a transcendent intelligence beyond it. The peculiar fact is that intelligence can function in this way. Those people who are monists, Christian monists, who are Unitarians, Christian Unitarians, and cannot comprehend the meaning of the Trinity, are failing to observe that the essence of intelligence, of personality, is such that it is not necessarily monistic. It can function intelligently, mutually interpenetrating itself with its own personalities, its own persons, so that the absolute, the Godhead, God the Father, exists as a person with an intelligence that is absolute and absolutely personal. Simultaneously, inside, there is the Christ mind, which is also a person, and this person is in an eternal dialogue with the Father. And across this bridge of the vehicle flies the motion which goes from the Father to the Son all the time, and this is the Holy Ghost. But this also is a person. It isn't a figure of speech. There is a person inside, something sounding through the vehicle, persona, through sounding, it does not mean a mask, as it's translated in the dictionary. It means that which sounds through. A mask is put on, something sounds through. And then afterwards they say, oh, the mask is the thing sounding through. But it isn't. The mask represents or represents in form to show you the character of what it is that is sounding through. Now, the Theosophists and some others have completely inverted the meaning of personality and individuality. They say the individuality is the indivisible, the unbreakable unity, and the personality is the mask. And it causes tremendous confusion when you find men like Steiner and others who are talking anthroposophical and theosophical terms borrowed from people of the order of Blavatsky without understanding the inversion that's occurred. If I draw a funny mask like this, and behind that mask there is a man, and this man is speaking through the mask, and persona is used, meaning through sounding, that which is through sounding is the man behind the mask. But he puts the mask on to show you the nature, the character of the voice that is coming through. So if we put on a Chinese mask, then we use a Chinese voice, and we identify with the Chinese concept. That means that the spirit is Chinese in itself. And that is the persona coming through the mask. Now through the jargon of the Theosophical Society, this has been inverted, and they have said persona refers to this thing, this superficial mask. 
and as such, personality is no good. And they talk about the cult of personality, the cult of superficiality, and so on. Whereas, factually, and philosophically, in its proper sense, the unique organizing immanent spirit is speaking through its vehicle, and persona means that which is speaking through. It does not mean that which is spoken through. So the true person is that which is speaking through that vehicle. And it, the vehicle has been thought to be the mask. And persona has been said to mean the mask. Well, in fact, it means the being speaking through that vehicle or superficial covering. Now, the word individuality has been cut to mean non-individual, but it doesn't mean a negation yet. It means in a state of individuation, which means in a state of finity, which means in a state where you can cut through it and analyze it. So the essence of individuality is analyzable form. And as such, it is subject to analysis, corruption, and death. Whereas the person is not subject to any such analysis because it is the imminent spirit speaking through that which is subject to analysis. You can analyze the individuality in terms of form, but you cannot analyze that which is speaking through. And these two terms, which are used in philosophy in the way I've just defined them, were inverted by Blavatsky and Kelly to a careless use of a dictionary, where they read persona equals the mass, and thought, well, that means superficial. And then they had to decide what to do with the word individual, so they decided it meant not divided, instead of in a state of division. This inversion caused tremendous confusion in certain literatures. You find that even in the Guria Suspensive Department, this theosophical usage of the word persona comes out. The personality is treated as superficial, instead of, as the existentialist philosopher would treat it, as the very unique essence of that being coming into existence as this individuality, and in the process expressing and manifesting and developing its uniqueness in the existential situation. So that we can say, in this diagram, there is a dialogue between what is inside that peculiar thing called mass. The imminent spirit of that being speaking through that covering and having a dialogue with the beyond. Beyond that is the infinite spirit and inside that is the imminent spirit, did I say transcendent? The transcendent spirit beyond the circle, the imminent spirit within it, the imminent spirit speaks outwards and says to the transcendent, how am I doing? And the transcendent says, you're doing in such wise, I think you'd better go over there and meet another little being, a bit blacker than you are, on the tendency to triangularity to complete your education. This dialogue goes on, the more and more obviously, the more you become conscious of it. If you listen very carefully inside yourself with complete honesty and ask, knowing that this transcendence is non-different from you and has information that as an individual you haven't got, and you ask it, what should I do next? in order to perfect the image of my true being in myself and listen, you will actually hear in your own language, because your own language is a filter, mechanically inbuilt to translate mechanically, like a little electronic brain does at a conference, to translate mechanically the information of the absolute into terms acceptable by the individual action level of yourself. Then here, within these terms, a statement, you go west-southwest, and there you will find the next step 
leading you on to higher levels of evolution. This dialogue exists all the time. With most individuals, it's most heightened when they're asleep, in bed instead of asleep, walking about in the street. But it can become made so heightened, so intense, that you can hear the information being given internally to you in this dialogue of the imminent and transcendent, as clearly as you can hear an ordinary conversation in day-to-day -day talking. It is important when you're doing that dialogue work that you are not duped. The imminent spirit is in relation with the transcendent spirit. They're in dialogue. But from the contingent relation, stimuli have inserted false voices and false recommendations from the contingent situation. You have to distinguish between these two voices. The voice of transcendent spirit telling you the information you want, and the voice of contingent stimulation telling you something that is telling you transcended in any case. And the way to tell them is quite easy. They have a totally different quality. When transcendence tells you something, you will never feel an inclination from it to push you. It never pushes you. It merely says what is, very, very quietly. There's lots of earthquakes and bangings and loud winds, and then there's still a small voice. <coughs> transcendence, because of its nature, can't make a big bang and a horrid noise and a grinding, impulsive driving. It just quietly says, X is not Y, and you know where you're up to. Do you want X or Y? And it then leaves it to you. The rest is your pigeon. Your reply is to choose. Transcendence presents you with spiritual data. Eminence chooses from it. Transcendence never insists, never compels. So that when you are testing to see whether your voice is of the devil or of God, you have a very, very simple means of knowing. If there is any driving impulse in the voice telling you to do something, anything that nudges you on a bit, it is not transcendence, but it belongs in the realm of contingent stimulation. And you feel a definite impulse in the body to do or not do the thing. And this is the test. When you feel an impulse in your body, when you put the question to yourself, what shall I do, if you feel a physical tendency to want to do it, or a mental tendency to say, oh, jolly good, I like that, or jolly good, I hate that, I'll break it. Whatever tendency you feel, an impulse, as soon as such appears, it is a demonstration that you are suffering from the devil, that is, from continued stimulation. Now, it has a function, as you see in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, or put us not to the test, according to the translation. It has a value because it is educating us in choice. Transcendence leaves us free to choose, but it presents us with the necessary data to choose from. But contingence doesn't leave us free, it presents us with data with a kick in them. And we have to learn to be free. And the only way we can learn to be free is by being pushed and then refusing to go in the direction of the push. If we don't get pushed, then we are not free. We must be able to be pushed and not to go in the direction of the push. So without the push as the temptation to see whether we will go, we can never understand what it means to be free. Because to be free means to be in the presence of a push and not to go in the direction of that. Let you summarize the thing. If you don't want to do the thing, then you're right to do it. No, no, because that might be the purely continuous <coughs> of inertia and laziness. If you look at the list of seven deadlies, there's one there that uh, occurs slowly, which shows just how contingent stimuli can actually encourage you to do nothing at all about the thing. And also, the rationalizing process will say, I think five or seven best in the little drawing about the man arguing with himself, lying on the ground, telling himself to get up, and insulting himself. And he goes through the strip and comes to the end picture, and he's told himself off through every picture, 
And at the end he says, I don't need to get married, I can nag myself. <laughs> See? But he's still on his back. That's the point. The rationalizing process is the process whereby any inclination of the will, any impulse, goes through the record of contingent evidences inside here and causes resonance in those that support the inclination. This inclination can actually go through all your information and produce evidences, reasons, why you should still lie on your back in bed in the face of all the evidence of eminence and transcendence. And that's the devil. But you shouldn't worry about it because it's an educational process. If you get overcome by the devil and you stay in bed today, it's quite all right. Tomorrow the bailiffs will be in to collect the bed. The world is built in such a way that if you don't learn your lesson on a Monday, you can learn it on a Tuesday. And if you don't learn the lesson of pulling yourself together before you're dead, on your deathbed at least you'll know that you didn't pull yourself together and that you've missed it. And then if you have a contrite heart and manage to repent before the heart starts beating, you're not so bad. At least you'll go into the next world with a clear conscience that you did manage to do it. If on the other hand, in the midst of your wickedness, you are hit by a bus and flattened before you have time to come to this decision, you go into the next world with a slight, didn't manage to make it before the bus came. And this sensation that one has, that one didn't manage to make it before the bus hit us, is what is called hell. You know, it's in the book of Revelations, it says, you can't do this sort of thing. You can't, after you've been hit, say, well, I was just about to reform. In its quaint old language, it says that him who stinks, stinks still. So you cannot reform after you've been hit. And the reason is a quite simple psychological one, that you know inside your own mind that you didn't do it. It doesn't need God to point at you. You know that you didn't reform and the bus hit you. And you are your own enemy. Because you have a pretty picture of yourself smart enough to reform just before you got hit. And the disparity between these two pictures is hell. Hell is simply the state of a man who didn't manage to pull himself together before the bus hit him. And it's hell because he knows he didn't. So as he didn't live up to his own pretty picture. So he doesn't even want to see other people telling him off. He can tell himself off, internally. And this internal process of self-telling off is hell. Very difficult state to get out of. If you come over mentally sick people occasionally, in a state of self-accusation, we'll take an extreme case. A fellow that will have everybody's profound sympathy Major Ellery, who dropped the atom bomb. Once the thing had been dropped, and he saw the results, he then saw that he was misrepresenting the case to himself. When he said he had no responsibility of his own because he was in the armed forces and he had taken an oath of allegiance and he had undertaken to do as he was told. Now, the usual method of putting people on oath is in order to relieve them of the strain of conscience. If I swear you all in to do as I say, and solemnly assure you all that whatever you do afterwards is my responsibility, and then I send a lot of you out to double bank and you all get caught, and I go and visit you and say, well, don't worry, lads, it's my responsibility. You won't like it when you're in jail. And you will know that really you were kidding yourself when you pretended that because this lovely arrangement of words had been uttered, you had been freed from internal self-responsibility. Taking an oath and going in the armed forces does not, in fact, remove responsibility from inside a man. It cannot do so. It's a lie. And everybody who does this oath-taking knows it's a lie, but they don't have to face that it's until they do a tremendous damage like maybe Heatherly did. And when he came out and the government gave him money for his efforts, he couldn't take the money. He couldn't take the money because he knew very well that they were paying him for doing something to quiet his conscience. And he was responsible and knew it. 
there's no hope for that man. Now, if we get hold of that man and say, we understand that at the time, uh, you were off guard. You didn't know enough, really. We're rationalizing for him. But he says, no, I knew at the time what I was doing, and I knew underneath, and I now know that I knew underneath, that I cannot throw my responsibility away onto somebody else's shoulders by a silly verbal formula, like an oath of allegiance. Therefore, says he, I am eternally damned. I mustn't take any money from anybody. If necessary, I must steal in order to live. I must have the electrodes on my brain, I must be brainwashed, so that they can say, at least he broke down, he was insane. It isn't really a wicked act, he just crackers. But it is a wicked act, and he knows it. Now, no amount of contingent statement from outside, from another finite, can help really anything. Only one thing can help him, and that is the inbreak from the absolute. Nothing else. Because he knows, as a finite being, that he did the deed, he was responsible, he lied to himself when he said he was not responsible because he was taking orders from outside. He knows he is responsible, and it is too late to do anything about it. He knew he was responsible then, and he did it. And this is a fact that he must eternally face. Now, if no further influx of grace comes into him, he is eternally stuck in that condition. No finite man can go and see him and pat him on the back and say, There, there, old chap, I would have done the same thing in your case. You say, I know, you probably would. And then you'd feel like I do now. Luckily, there is a way. And this way is open only from outside. We cannot open it from the contingent. It's not we're going to him with a letter of sympathy. Millions of people have already written in letters of sympathy. And it makes no difference. It merely increases his gift. Because those same millions of people writing those letters, but for a little trick of fate, would be on the receiving end of the bomb he dropped. So there's no conceivable hope for him from contingent people trying to ease their own weak consciences by giving him sympathy, because they know they would have done the same thing in the same condition. But there is this <coughs> blood of God which can break in. And it can break in for a very simple reason, the piece, the piece of paper underneath the marks, underneath the circle that represents mainly heavenly, the paper is still there. It was never broken. Somehow, inside him there, that paper is still vibrating, that spirit is still doing something to him. And he is a very peculiar kind of scapegoat. As an individual, he doesn't know. As an individual, we can't comfort him. As other individuals, we can do nothing to help him, only make matters worse. And underneath him is that absolute motion of the spirit from which he could never be separated, simply because what we call major enemy is simply a motion compound, a complex pattern of forces which are in and of that God in which he has his being. And he has a very peculiar function, which as an individual he knew nothing about. And he stands today as a kind of scapegoat for every man who on oath does something that no man can relieve himself of, in fact. He's shaped more people throughout the world by that fact than any man not so in the bomb could have done. Somehow he's a peculiar kind of scapegoat poor insane fellow with the electrodes on his brain by the clever fellows who sent him out to prove him crazy, completely scapegoated until finally this redeeming blood, this influx of the absolute into him, presses in and resorts the matter out. And then, in due course, and this is entirely a matter of reaction from outside, grace has entered into him. And through that into other beings. So all such men represent 
the type of scapegoat through whom grace comes, first through one man and then through many. And in this very peculiar sense, any man who gets put on the spot and scapegoated is again a re-embodiment of the Christ principle as chief scapegoat. It doesn't matter what he does. If he does something so horrible that through him all the beings in the universe are made aware of the horror of certain activities so that they are eternally released from them, then the blood of the absolute flows in him first and through him to all these other beings and he might be termed the Christ of that given act. And a younger brother of the cosmic Christ who has made the big act, the original Bozier from which all the other beautiful gestures derive. See, when we're talking about Major Etherly, we're talking about <coughs> configuration called the short body of them. Yeah. Okay. It has no choice. But the long body of Major Etherly goes backwards and forwards into eternity. And this is the one that had the choice. There's a peculiar something inside him that makes him, and this is essentially him, determined to go on being awkward about this because if he accepted the cash and the decorations the conscience of the world would go to sleep and deep down inside he knows it and he's paying this price thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes. Thank you.